were both so focused on our own grief, uh, our own struggles. But I guess through the, the process of him helping me, which was strange because, it, you know, if anything, I would have thought he would be the one needing help, more help, since he was a father. Well, I think we helped each other. Woody and Mary Perryman had a most unusual courtship. You know, honestly, I don't even remember meeting you the first time. That's what's so funny. But, but then again, I was so distraught. You know, everyone's faces are were a blur from that first night. I just uh, cried so hard, and I was so stunned by everyone's story. And each person, I would think, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And then I would think, the second thought would be, wow, but they survived it. They're here tonight. They're making it, you know. They met at a support group for people whose loved ones were murdered. Woody's son, Brandon Perryman, was shot to death on a Sunday night, August 3, 2006, after a fight at an apartment complex in northeast Oklahoma City. The body of Mary's little sister, Jennifer Sipes, was found partially nude and burned in a grass fire at a new housing development near Edmond, Oklahoma, on December 5, 2005. She had been stabbed in the neck with a serrated knife. Jennifer was, being the youngest in the family, I don't want to say spoiled, but she was definitely doted on, being the baby. So, and she was just like this little butterfly that flitted into our lives one day. She was kind of the oopsie because she was so young and she was just a ball of energy, always laughing, always wanting to do something fun. Uh, Brandon, he was 20, just turned 20, 20 years and 15 days. He was still youthful, I guess. Loved to fish. Vanilla was his favorite ice cream. Well, all of it was, but he liked vanilla. I don't know, he was a jokester. Always in people's space, personal space. The violent deaths of a son and a sister brought the Paramans together. Theirs is a marriage built on love, faith, and a Christian hope for heaven where Brandon and Jennifer are waiting. Between now and eternity, Mary and Woody lean on each other and look forward to the reunion. It's hard to believe they've been gone so long. I know, a long time. It's been a, an incredible journey since Jennifer has been gone because it ne things don't ever seem the same again. No, they're not. They're, it's, it's, a, it's a new normal. There's always, always someone obviously missing at family gatherings, you know, even just for regular daytime conversations. I miss her phone calls. I miss seeing her. And I told myself I would never, ever let her be forgotten. But I would talk about her as much as I can. For The Oklahoman and Gannett Media, I'm Josh Delaney. You are listening to Life After Death, Part 4, Till Death Do Us Part. Nobody really knows for sure. Her case was uh, different in that she would stay with my mom a lot, and then she would go out, and we thought she had a boyfriend. And, uh, in fact, my mom knew his name, but apparently that wasn't who she was with whenever she was murdered. Um, so, yeah, it was really shocking. I remember seeing um, 
the story in December 2005 of the body that they found burning in Edmond. And it really, really touched me because I thought, oh my gosh, some poor family is going to find out that their daughter, has her, her body's been burned. She's been killed and she's, you know, they've burned her body. Never knowing that it was my family. Months followed of us not hearing from her and wondering what's going on, where is she? You know, we didn't know anything until August of 2006, whenever I came home and I saw reconstruction of her head on a desk in Edmond at the Edmond police station. And when I walked in, I turned the TV on and I saw that, dropped my purse, I dropped my keys, and I got shaky and I felt this cold because when I saw the reconstruction, I said, oh my God, that's Jennifer. The artist did a phenomenal job. Called my other sister. I said, Jackie, are you watching the TV? And she said, no, I'm going to my cooking class. And I said, go turn your TV on. And I said, that's her, isn't it? And she said, yeah, looks like her. Looks a lot like her. And I was just stunned. I don't think I slept at all that night that I realized. I mean, I just, all I could do, I had this nervous pacing. My sister was supposed to go the next morning and take some pictures uh, to the Edmund police and see if they could identify and, uh, you know, if that was her. So finally, through DNA, along with dental records, they were able to decide that it was Jennifer. And our family was just in shock. We were in shock for a long, long time. You know, sometimes I, I think back about it, and I know it's been many years since this happened, but it's still shocking to me. It still comes back as a shock when I really think about it. In the aftermath of her sister's death, Mary joined an Oklahoma City area homicide survivor support group. It was like my first meeting when I met Woody. I met a lot of people that night. Mm -hmm. There must have been 20 people there. There's a bunch. Or more. There were a lot of people. Grandparents who'd lost their grandson. Mm -hmm. uh, adult, you know, adults who'd lost their children, their grown children. Um, brother, people who'd lost their brother. Um, and it's just, it's, it's quite overwhelming when you sit in a room like that and you hear of all these different murder stories and you think, wow! And it's not something that the average everyday person thinks about I mean, because you don't realize that all these murders are just, they're accumulating. And, and there are all these multiple families in our state that have suffered the loss of a loved one at the hands of a murderer. I was probably there three meetings, mm -hmm. and those were held at the uh, downtown county building. It was under uh, West Lane at the time. Soon Woody and Mary discovered that Jennifer, Mary's sister, and Brandon, Woody's son, were buried just days apart. They, they uh, died, what was it, seven months apart? Or yeah. eight, eight months apart, I think. Yeah. Eight months. Eight months, I believe. But the crazy thing is, they were buried close to the same time because he died in August, August 13th. August 13th. And then we didn't get Jennifer's body back from 
medical examiners that had to go from there to the funeral home. So we didn't get her body released until like toward the end of the month, end of August. Both were buried in August of the same year. The freshness of Brandon's murder weighed heavily on Woody. Police said Brandon and another man had been fighting with other people at the Dungy Apartments in Oklahoma City when he was shot to death. I was living in Oklahoma Park at the time. And he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. The moment I fell flat on my face. Sorry. Still hard at times, you know. It's been years and it still hurts. It never really goes away. He was my kid, you know. But I fell flat on my face and I just said, God, help the police find the killer. And two days later, they called me, they found him. Maybe it was the next day. They, they called me, they had the guy. And that's a prayer answered, I mean. So I have to give God all the glory. The Homicide Survivors Group was a refuge where Woody and Mary shared the pain and confusion over their losses, where they received guidance from those who had walked the same tragic path, where they learned to welcome new people into their fellowship of grief. If they choose to. A lot of people don't go. A lot of people show up once and that's it. But a lot of them keep coming. And that's what we're there for. I would say that the majority of new people that come are typically mothers who've lost a child. You know, an adult daughter, adult son. And I think women are more prone to probably reaching out for help, maybe than men. They, they feel more comfortable asking somebody for help and mm-hmm. leaning on others. And I think that's where Woody comes in really helpful at the meetings because he can talk with them about his role of, as a dad losing an adult child. And I can relate well with those who've lost a sibling. And we are not counselors by any means. No, we're just talking (laughs) about how we get through it, what works for us. And um, it gives them a little bit of something to go on that next week. Gives us all hope. And we tell them, if you want to call anybody here, anyone you felt a connection with, ask that person for their number and they'll be happy to, you know, talk with you over the next month. You know, the main thing about that group is, like I said earlier, people understand. I mean, you can go to a counselor who's been through the, all the training, but if they've never experienced what you've experienced, they really, truly don't understand the pain that you're going through. Somebody who's lived it, they know. While helping others cope with homicide and learning more about each other's tragedy, the Paramans grew closer together. Spent a lot of uh, times visiting loved ones' graves, together. Yeah, we had no idea that we'd end up married. <laughs> yeah, that was unforeseen. But, you know, I think I think that, you know, similar uh, minds come together. And uh, I also believed that he, the way he believed that we would see them again. Mm-hmm. We kind of imagined them together, you know, rooting, rooting us on to, to stay strong and continue helping others. Heck of a place to meet, huh? In their discussions with new members of the Homicide Survivor Support Group, the Paramans urge people to be patient with the arduous process of justice. It can take years to see a murderer stand before a judge and be sent to prison. It seems unfair that victims have no rights, and I know the state's working on getting more victims' rights, and the defendants have all the rights. You know, it says in the Constitution they have to have a speedy trial. When you're going three years, four years, five in one case, over 20 years, 
there's no speedy trial, you know. It's just, it just doesn't seem fair in a lot of people's eyes. And I completely understand that. I mean, unfortunate, my prayers were answered. Ours went quickly. It still took over two years before it all was done. But where's the speedy trial? In the aftermath of Brandon Perryman's death, 25-year-old Antonio Antoine Reeves was arrested on a first-degree murder complaint. Nearly three years later, Reeves pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, shooting with intent to kill, and possessing a gun after former convictions. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus two additional life terms. Reeves admitted killing Brandon Perriman, and also injuring another man that deadly August night. Anyway, I agreed to the uh, life without prison. Life without parole. Life without parole. And in order to do that, he had to agree to um, waive all his appeal rights. We were blessed to have the guy caught so quickly. I know there's a lot of families out there that are still suffering years later. They don't even have a clue. So I just give God all the glory for answering my prayer at that moment. Before Reeves went to prison, the Perriman family was able to meet with the convicted murderer's family. Woody forgave his son's killer. He recalled Reeves weeping and saying he would trade places with Brandon if he could. That was very cathartic, I thought, yeah. just meeting with the defendant. Face-to-face. Yeah. Face-to-face and asking him, have you made peace with this, with, with Brandon? Have you made peace with God over this? He cried, cried and cried and cried. And he's a really big guy. I mean, he was just brought down to his knees and he said yes I have and if I could trade places with Brandon yeah he did and Woody told him remember what you said about when you go to prison exactly something to the effect of but I'm going to expect you as part of your making reparations with Brandon and God to talk with people in prison and try to get them you know, changed a change of heart within them with other killers. And he promised he would do that. He would, yeah. Yeah, he, he did. And I haven't kept up with him, so I don't know how he's been acting in prison. But I do know that he seemed at that moment very uh, sorry for what he did. Mm-hmm. And I he told really him did. I forgive him for what he did, but I also tell him I hope he lives a long, long time to think about what he's done. Yeah, you did. I remember you saying that for sure. Reeves is 39 years old. He is serving life without parole at North Fork Correctional Facility in Sayre, Oklahoma. The man who murdered Jennifer Sipes, Mary's sister, has already served his sentence. In November 2006, about three months after her body was identified, Ronald Wayne Wyndham, a 34-year-old man, walked into the Norman, Oklahoma Police Department and confessed to killing Sipes then taking her body to Edmund and setting it on fire. Wyndham claimed he had an intimate relationship with Sipes after meeting around Thanksgiving a year earlier. He told authorities he suspected Sipes of burglarizing his vehicle a day after Thanksgiving 2005. In October 2007, Wyndham was sentenced to two consecutive life terms, plus 21 years for murder, arson, unlawful removal of a human body, obtaining money by false pretenses, and domestic abuse. About 10 years later, Wyndham died while serving his time at Joseph Harp Correctional Center in Lexington, Oklahoma. The state medical examiner said Wyndham died of hypertensive heart disease. He was 45 years old. I did not expect that phone call. 
they called and said, just wanted to let you know that, you know, it was, it, that was very, I was stunned she when was. I heard that. I, she was in disbelief. I, I still can't believe he's gone because we were thinking and hoping that he would be in there a long, long time. And it ended up only being something like 10 or 11 years. That was just shocking because, I don't know, in a way you feel like the circle is complete, but in another way you feel like... You feel like you cheated. You feel like you were cheated, absolutely. But we know justice has been served. He, he served his time. He was in there to life. Right, and he was that, that was the deal, to be there for the rest of his life, and he was indeed, so... Wyndham's death in prison wasn't the only justice for Mary. In 2008, former Governor Brad Henry signed Jenny's Law, making it unlawful to desecrate a human corpse to avoid detection of a crime. I know that uh, at the time when we lost Jennifer, that would have given us a lot of comfort, and we would have felt that he was being held accountable for that too. But there was no law at the time that we lost Jennifer. There's been several cases since then that people have been Many, charged. many cases recently. A lot of cases since her death that have lost someone and they've been, their body's been mutilated, burned, desecrated in some way. But I started uh, emailing the senator for my district and the representative. This was Jim Reynolds? Jim Reynolds. And I was... Um, in constant contact with him. Texas had just passed their law for this very same thing the year before we got Jenny's law. Getting the law passed was no small feat. It almost got shot down. Um, there was a certain legislator that said, Oklahoma already has too many laws. That family just needs to heal. But Senator Reynolds wouldn't give up. He said, mm, no, I don't think so. We'll, we'll try this a different way then. So at least something positive came out of the tragedy of her being killed. Because I, I know it has to help other families. Just knowing that their perpetrator will be held accountable for burning their loved one's body. The sudden and violent loss of Jennifer was made harder by the fact that the family could not see the 20-year-old before saying goodbye. The really hard thing for us was that we couldn't have an open casket. That was really, really hard. I mean, if you've ever been to a funeral of someone that you love that you couldn't... I mean, I... So many times I wanted to sneak over and lift it up, but I knew there was nothing in there but bones already. But still, you have that strong urge to see your loved one. But the only thing we were able to actually see was the reconstruction. And that was, uh, that was better than nothing. And plus the fact that the forensic artist, the detective, let us keep it on Jennifer so that she was buried with her reconstruction. I said, I want my sister buried with a face. He tried to erase her identity. I want, and she said, I'll see if I can leave the components on her. And she got it authorized, so we were able to bury Jennifer with a face. That meant so much to me, even though we couldn't see her in the casket. It's very tough.
As violently as their lives ended, Mary and Woody work hard to remember the good things about Brandon and Jennifer's lives. She loved rollerblading. I taught her how to rollerblade when she was little. Uh, she loved Frontier City, amusement parks. She was always the girl that would get on the scariest ride. She loved the thrill of the, the pirate ship thing. I hate that ride. <laughs> she loved it. She was kind of the adventurous uh, child out of the rest of us, I would say. But yeah, she was she was awesome. Brandon always friended the uh, under underdog kids. I remember one time this kid, I didn't like him because I never met him, but he had this little Camaro and he would come by and honk and Brandon would run out. And I'd say, won't you just have this kid come in and meet me? Well, he's handicapped. I said, no, he's not. He's driving his car. He said, dad, he's handicapped. Come out here. So I went out there and this poor kid is handicapped. He had control, hand controls on his car. And I felt really bad at that moment. Because <laughs> I was fussing a friend. I said, won't you just have this kid come and meet me, you know? You didn't know, dear. You I didn't know. You can't be hard on yourself, though. You know, you didn't realize that. Brandon had a big heart, from that, what you told me. That's who he was. He had a really big heart, yeah. Woody and Mary look forward to holidays. Brandon loved July 4th. The couple will typically watch fireworks displays to honor him. Around Christmas time, they visit the cemeteries where Brandon and Jennifer are buried. They place wreaths and other items there. Other days are special too. Brandon and Jennifer's birthdays, their death days, each is honored. One, one Christmas, we made these big grave blankets for Jennifer and Brandon that were uh, garland strung through chicken wire. And then we put all the decorations and a wreath on. And uh, it's, every year we try to think of something nice that we like to put at their grave in honor of Christmas. And they have the, um, the Tree of Remembrance event that happens every November, like the end of November. And we try to go to that every year. We have ornaments with for Jennifer and Brandon down there on the tree. It's for victims, all, all victims. Of yeah. All, all Not just crimes. murders, but it's for all crimes, you know. Violent crimes, but... Yeah, um, it's been... It's been an amazing ride experiencing this. It's been extremely uh, sad and... But it's the good side of that has been trying, you know, helping other people through it. It's humbling too. It's very humbling, yeah. Still, the memories of Brandon and Jennifer don't fill the void of seeing them, or talking to them, or telling them they are loved. I mean, you don't really know how, how am I supposed to handle this, you know? Uh, you never get a settled feeling inside with them being gone because it's unnatural and they should be here. So it, you never feel okay with it. It just doesn't seem, uh, it just seems like something out of the twilight zone that they're gone. You know, I, sometimes I will just sit and think to myself, I wish Jennifer could be back just for one hour so I could tell her the ways in which we have remembered her since she's been gone. And uh, just wish I could update her on what all's going on in the family since she's been gone, you know. And I think about Brandon every day, wondering, 
what he would sound like or what he would look like, you know, what he would be doing for a living, you know, at this point in his life. Would he still be begging to go fishing all the time? Probably. Wanting you to go with him. There was a little creek in the Coma Park right off the 10th and Anderson. He would get on his bicycle and ride down there every time, every chance he could. And always bring fish home, we'll be perched, but he'd bring them home. The Perrymans are a Christian couple who believe they will see Brandon and Jennifer again. The tragic ends to their lives shook the Perrymans, but their faith provided a firm foundation. It's very hard to explain. Um, when you when you lose someone that you love to murder, it's hard to see God in the picture at all, because you, in a way you feel like you've been your family's been abandoned by God. But we realize God did not make these murderers kill our loved ones. Can't blame him at all. Until the reunion with a son and a sister, Woody and Mary will lean on each other, believing Brandon and Jennifer would want them to live their lives to the fullest and enjoy their time together. Survivors have a knack for knowing how quickly life can end. They also have a way of absorbing pain that others don't. Another headline about murder may not penetrate people a nerd to daily reports of violence. But to the Paramans, such news is piercing. It may mean new visitors to their survivors group. You hear about murders every day. And you just hear about it and you go on. After experiencing it, living it, every time I hear about it, I stop and I think about those people. And I wonder, you know. And sadly, we look at, when we see it on TV, a new one that's been murdered, we look at each other and say, well, there's another family that may be coming to our meeting. So sad. After Death podcast series was written by Josh Delaney, produced by Paige Dillard and Nate Billings. Ooh.